Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Squatch Radio. My name is Connor Malley, and I'm your host. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to share a little bit about me and why Squatch Radio exists. So I've been a passionate Squatch player for almost 20 years, but what makes my path slightly different from your average Squatch player is I've also made Squatch my career. I've worn almost every hat and worked in almost every role in the industry. Some quick examples are I've gone from being a volunteer at a professional event to then becoming the CEO of the US Open. I've gone from trying to make Team USA to then becoming the director of all national teams while working at US Squash. And I've certainly gone from just playing on squash courts to focusing on how the sport can grow in the United States. What has been a big part of fueling my passion all these years are the fascinating, passionate, and dedicated people involved in our sport. So Squash Radio, well, that's just a way to try and help share those stories. We hope you like it, and if you're interested in growing the sport, get in touch. Or can you help share these stories? Comments are welcome on any social media or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Our biggest challenge is always trying to get the word out, so any help is so much appreciated. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Today's guest is Bill Ullman, who is a passionate squash player through and through. He played college squash for Princeton University under the legendary coach Bob Callahan. In this episode, we go through Bill's career in the world of finance and the different paths that he's taken along the way. Then we go through some squash talk with some of our insights on the sport, as well as Bill's own connection to the game of squash. Then we dive into his own podcast called Squashing the Market and how he approaches the types of guests he has on and his reasons for getting it going, as well as covering some other topics along the way. Of course, we have the quick fire section where we get to know the guest a little bit better. Take a listen, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey there, Squash fans, and welcome back to another episode of Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley. And today, we're actually making another little bit of Squash Radio history, because I'm having my first ever fellow podcaster, Bill Ullman, the host of Squashing the Market. Welcome to the show. Pleased to be here, Connor. Well, Bill, we're kind of turning the tables on here because you interview people on your podcast, but here's going to be my delight to interview you. Thank you. I hope I'm a worthy subject. And we're going to spend a little bit more time later on diving into the podcast, but for all those podcaster fans out there, really should check this one out. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm not just saying that. It's the confluence of so many things that I enjoy, but also Bill is a, a marvel of a host. So a lot to live up to here. Thank you. Well, what I thought would be a good place to start is just giving people a little bit of background about you and your career. And it, you have, it seems like several chapters under your belt here. And I was wondering if you could kind of touch on the highlights of those various chapters throughout your career. Yeah, I think that's a good way to to put it too. I feel like I keep trying to reinvent myself a little bit every number of years. First part of my career was very typical, standard, I suppose. I got out of business school and I went into the investment banking training program at Merrill Lynch. And I focused on financial institutions, banks, insurance companies, money managers, broker dealers. 
And our responsibility was to execute and originate corporate finance transactions for those companies. So M&A, raising capital, going public, raising debt, and also many privatizations as well. And it gave me a chance to see the world a little bit. I worked in India and South Africa and Argentina. I had a chance to spend three years of my early career in London, working with European financial institutions. And then I came back, got recruited to Bear Stearns, and I really shifted then from the invest, typical investment banker role to one of more a more managerial financial executive role. And I was helping manage what's called the prime brokerage and global clearing services business at Bear Stearns. And that's the part of the company that dealt with hedge funds and money managers and small broker dealers. And we provided all the transaction execution and leverage and transaction clearing capabilities for those clients. And then in 2006, after 17 years on Wall Street, I decided to go out on my own. I was, I was getting beaten up and tired of uh, the system, so to speak, and became more of an entrepreneur and created a fund to invest in financial services companies, as well as advising certain companies going forward. And so that was kind of phase two. And I did that for a while and ran into this thing called the global financial crisis, which was no fun to be an investment manager in, and transitioned my business much more towards the advisory arena as a result and started working with a lot of financial technology companies and other clients. And that sort of led me into chapter three, which has been this whole fintech revolution that's going on in the United States. And I've been able to, in a very small way, advise and invest in that area. And one company that I had a particularly good relationship with called Orchard Platform ended up hiring me to be more full-time and I became CEO of their broker-dealer subsidiary and their chief revenue officer. It gave me an incredible seat and window onto the fintech scene around the country, but also in New York City and all the entrepreneurship going on. It's just very exciting to be around all this talent and youth, and I say that now jealously, that are building and creating incredible companies that will be leaders in the future in the financial services business. And then the last thing I've been doing in terms of reinvention is I combined this network that I've developed over the years and this interest in financial services and investing and created this podcast called Squashing the Market. And we talk to fintech leaders, investing leaders, and try to understand what's going on in the marketplace today, which is changing a lot, as we all know. And so that's been a really fun thing. And then I became a bit of an entrepreneur myself and started a quiz game called The Daily FinQ, which you can get on the Apple App Store. You can play on the web. And it's just a very basic game to help people understand money finance, personal finance, investing, and all the basic things we should know. And so that's my life today. I mean, so many amazing things to touch on right there. And one of the things, just going a little bit chronologically, was if I'm getting my timing correct, when you were leaving the iBanking world, that was kind of a really brave step for you, right? 
I feel like at that time there was a lot of movement going on, but what was the potential low light or highlight from that first chapter of your career? Well, the highlight from being an investment banker, the call it the first 17 years, was the learning and the intensity of the learning and being around so many smart, ambitious people. I really enjoyed that environment. I enjoyed learning about companies, thinking about them. And of course, when you're in the financial institutions group, you are always thinking about the economy at large and either the regions or the countries in which a particular financial institution operates, how they make their money, who their clients are, what are the underlying economic trends that they're dealing with, and what kind of management teams do they have. And I got a taste, for example, in terms of highlights. In 1999, I started banking a client called NetBank. It was really one of the first online banking organizations in America. And it's nothing like what we think of online banking today, which is where multiple revolutions or evolutions beyond NetBank. But it was the first time you could actually log in over the internet, look at your account, pay bills online, look at your deposits, and begin to move money around electronically. This bank, we raised about, I don't know, six or seven hundred million dollars for them over a six or seven month period. It was like being strapped to a rocket ship as a banker. It was very exciting. They were growing incredibly rapidly. And I remember being on what you call a roadshow, which is when in uh, pre-COVID, you would actually go and meet with investors face to face. And I was taking the CEO around all around the country to meet with investors who wanted to buy or were thinking of buying stock in this company. And while we're on the road, the stock moved from making up the numbers, but the equivalent of, say, $15 a share to $60 a share, which is unheard of for a bank. Bank stocks don't move like that generally. So we had this incredibly difficult time when it came to the end of the roadshow to figure out how to price this equity offering. But it was very exciting to be a part of that. That was the dot-com era. And to be a part of that in my career at that point in time, that was 1999. The low points of my banking career were all around the people and some of the people that I ran into and and the level of ambition and competitiveness with your fellow bankers could be annoying and frightening. So taking all of your experience within the investing community, Do you have a philosophy that you've developed over those years? There are definitely some things I've learned from making mistakes and from some successes. I think from an investing point of view, and I'm not talking about trading, I'm talking about investing. So thinking about things over a longer period of time, the single most important thing that I have done in my life financially has been to be a religious saver. In other words, every opportunity that I was given to put money aside when I worked at Merrill or Bear Stearns or for myself, wherever the government was giving me a break from a tax point of view to set money aside and avoid paying taxes on it, I always saved kind of till it hurt to be honest. And when my companies that I worked for maybe matched my 401k, I always took that. I always tried to contribute the max. And what's really interesting about it is it plays into what Albert Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world, which is compounding interest. Over long periods of time, if you just stay invested in the stock market, for example, and you allow it to grow, particularly tax-free, it compounds into much, much bigger numbers. And it's that patience to do that and the wherewithal to do that. I know this sounds like really basic, stupid, whatever advice, boring, but 
looking back now as a 57-year-old at these accounts and how much they've grown, I don't think I could have even envisioned it as a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old that the accounts would be this big. And I've done nothing particularly special or genius in terms of how I've invested them. I've basically been invested in the stock market, in broad indexes, and just let it run. No, I think reinforcing the basics is always important. Same thing is true in squash, right? And I was guilty of this, of I was trying to, and again, I heard this investment advice where it's like, and I was falling into, I was trying to time the market versus time in the market. And I was, I was very, (laughs) yeah, I was very guilty of that. It's interesting because I was doing some research on what strategy I wanted to do. And I didn't realize there's also a huge part of like, I got gun shy when you have to write that check and transfer that money. I got gun shy. And so I think for me that there are various hurdles at each stage to getting involved in investing yep. that I think need to be talked well, about. And that's why you want to kind of try to avoid being a trader, which is timing the market, right? And you want to be an investor, which is to think about things in the long term. And the other thing about investing is, and the nice thing of say about 401ks and IRAs is you don't have to put it all in at once. You can put a little in each month or every year, just be disciplined about, I'm going to put X into my IRA every year. I'm going to put X into my 401k every two weeks because it comes out of my salary. I don't even notice it, that it's gone. And it's a tough mentality. And, and particularly our whole culture works against that mentality because we're all about consumerism and materialism and the latest shiny toy or the fanciest vacation or the biggest home. And the reality is anyone can win as an investor if they're patient, if they're disciplined, and if they kind of stay with quality. I mean, look, I'm not saying anything new here. I mean, if you want to learn about investing, it's not hard. It's all on the internet. But you want to get a little more detailed, go read the annual reports that Warren Buffett puts out every year for Berkshire Hathaway. Read his investor letter. You will learn pretty much all you need to know about investing from that. I like it. Well, I'd like to take your years of studying industries and understanding markets and this kind of stuff and turn our attention to squash as an industry. And let's remove sort of the individuals from it and just take, if we were trying to decide or banter back and forth about, is this a good investment or not? How would we look at that and what are the components? So I know it's a broad question, but let's let's try and break this down a little bit. How do you look at the squash industry? Well, I think let's start with sort of strengths and weaknesses of the, the game, the sport. And I think the first strength that I always think of when I think of squash is that it has an incredibly passionate community of players playing the game. And so we start with a kind of a rabid fan base. Now, the flip side of that, it's a small-ish group of people based on sports all around America and around the world, right? We're not even close to what tennis or golf or soccer, football, baseball, hockey, basketball, you could go on and on. There's a lot of sports that are much, much bigger than squash. But we have this incredible group of players who love the game and love to talk about the game and play it and 
proselytize about it. The second thing is the game itself is just, I think it's been described as physical chess. It is this most unique combination of hand-eye coordination and racket skills, stamina, and strategy. And you have to be good at all three of those things to really excel at the game. If you've got great power, but you don't have any strategy, we all know where that ends. If you've got great stamina, but you can't put the ball away and you don't have any shot making capability, that's not the right thing. You need this unique combination of skills. And so I would say as a game for me, and I played all sorts of sports as a kid and I love sports, I love watching sports and I play a lot of tennis uh, and golf still, but squash for me is the most complete game. It just, it seems to encapsulate everything. Tennis comes very close for me, but squash is a truly a great game. So that's another strength that it has. But getting into the kind of the weaknesses, we talked about just raw numbers of players, but I would say we are capacity constrained. We do not have enough places to play squash in a public sense. And so we have an accessibility problem and we have a problem that outside of private schools and even a select group of private schools at that, we really don't have squash being played in middle schools and high schools around America. And there's no reason it couldn't be. There's no reason it can't be outdoors. A friend of mine built a court in Queens, outdoor court in Queens that I've played on a couple of times now. And it can be done. So it seems to me we have to, the sport has to figure out a way to build more courts and get it into our school systems in a much bigger way than it is. Somehow tennis, let's just take tennis, which was a country club, narrow country club sport for most of the 20th century. There are tennis courts at every middle school and high school in America, basically. They're everywhere. So there's no, you don't have this accessibility problem that you do in squash. And that to me is a is a worrisome part of the game. And I think the last thing I would say that squash has to overcome, but it's more, I believe, it's more of an American phenomenon than a global phenomenon, is that squash in the U.S. Is, has been branded as an elitist kind of prep school, country club, private city club type sport. And I think if, for those of us who've been lucky enough to play squash around the world, it's not like that in England. I mean, boarding schools do play in England, but there's most of the stuff there is public leagues. And and then I've played in Europe, I've played in South Africa, I've played in Australia, I've played in Israel, and it's all public. All these places I've been playing have been public. And somehow in the US, it's been confined to a, a narrower group. And I'd say that also leads to the flip side. The positive is squash is a global sport. It is played all over the world. And in fact, the best players, as we who are in the game know, are not necessarily coming from the U.S. They're coming from all over the world, which is very exciting to see. And so it truly is a game with global acceptance. So we need to take advantage of that as well. So I see it as like any business, there's strengths, there's weaknesses. We have to figure out how to overcome the weaknesses and build on the strengths. I mean, I would agree with your assessment there as well. And if we were suddenly to deputize you as like chief strategy <laughs> officer for for the sport, because I think that there's issues to, if we have aspirations for growth, essentially we need to scale. And so I think scaling comes with inherent challenges. And I mean, we can clearly point towards there needs to be a capitalization here if we think it's worth investing in. And there's different ways to do that. There's donations, there's 
self-capitalization of like bootstrapping, like how do you make your own money? Or is this actually investable? And they're all good questions to be had. And so if we're looking at that, what do you see are the, the major hurdles for scale if you're zooming well, out? I see the major hurdle is court construction. And how do we figure out how does U.S. Squash, SEA, all the organizations, the local leagues, the regional parts of squash, how do we get more courts built so that more people can be exposed to the game and more people can play? I would say one of the other advantages of the game, and I forgot to mention it, is it's a lifelong sport. So people can come in and out of the game as I have. I spent a decade working in the 1990s. I didn't, I barely lifted a racket for 10 years, which was a bummer, but it truly is a lifelong sport. And doubles, in fact, allows people to continue playing for much longer, I think, really well into your 80s. And so we can't have kids learn the game. And then the only places they can play are one or two private clubs in their city that they end up moving to. That's just not, I don't think you're ever going to grow. So to me, we've got to figure out how to get clubs and schools and athletic facilities anywhere to include squash and include squash courts in there. Maybe there's a cheaper way to build courts. I don't know. Maybe this outdoor court movement is something that could truly happen in the South in warmer climates in in America. I don't know. I would figure out how to fund, build and fund court construction and work with schools and communities to do it. One of the ways, and I kind of came to this realization when I was at US Squash, and I'm outside my depth here, so this is why I need help, is I felt like the way to really look at the growth of squash is it's all real estate deals. And then the other part to that is like, well, how do we franchise this? And when you start kind of meshing the two together, you have to answer a lot of questions that is, there's much more of a standardization on how to do that. So if, you know, just look at Panera, like how did that scale, right? We're dealing with brick and mortar here, but just like brick and mortar, there has to be an undercurrent of technology. And I think we have actually answered a lot of the technology issues. I think that there's solutions out there that could support the game. So it's the brick and mortar, which I think you're correct with the court construction and the variety of options and products there, both indoor and outdoor perspective. But then I go to programming and also what's the programming and then the people to provide that. So I think we look a lot towards just teaching professionals there, but we don't have a solid pipeline of getting recruiting talent into the industry. And also then, and then I look at that one of the most valuable resources that could be there within the squash community is actually a program coordinating role. And so we look a lot towards coaching, but think about a coach is actually limited to a one-to-one ratio or one-to-four ratio from per hour, how much they can influence versus if you had eight courts that you're operating and a great program coordinator can really infuse tournaments or day-to-day activity. So I think that that is an Yeah, I mean, I, I would say just, again, my perspective, and I don't know if it's accurate or not, but we have a lot of squash talent in America and a lot of people who are capable of coaching and teaching squash at a very high level, not to mention at a junior level, a beginner level. Um, we just went through a search process at my home club in New York City, the university club, and we had way more qualified applicants for one slot, right? Like, So there's talent out there. There's people who want to teach, who want to get better at teaching and coaching. And my sense is we don't have the opportunities for all of them, to be honest. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I think the two do go hand in hand. We need more talent to teach and coach, and we need more opportunities for them to teach and coach. 
right now is actually more of a, the position you're talking about is one of the coveted positions in the sport. True. So everyone's going to come gonna out. Fly. You're right. Everyone's going to come out. Probably. So we're, we're right now we're missing that kind of connection to the parks and recs department on a continuum basis, which tennis did very effectually, racquetball and handball did. So we need to really mobilize as a community behind those land yeah. opportunities. Look, I mean, and I really feel like the squash community has been incredibly loyal, incredibly generous as well. I mean, look at the number of kids playing squash today from disadvantaged backgrounds that never would have been even holding a racket or known what a squash court is. And so that whole SEA movement, it's a national, it's international now. And this is great because it's creating so much talent and enthusiasm in the game. And in particular for people who probably wouldn't have been exposed to it. But if you really want to talk about growth, those people, in addition to all the people who get exposed to the game through being at the clubs and schools where they, they're lucky enough to have squash, they have to be able to continue to play. And it has to be easy. It's got to be like going to Equinox or New York Sports Club or whatever. I look at New York City and it's kind of sad because I think we have fewer public squash courts today than we did when I was growing up in the 1980s, 70s and 80s. And that's a bummer for the game for New York City. I mean, look, and it's back to what you said before. It's about real estate and the value of real estate. And a squash court is very hard to justify in midtown Manhattan. Yeah. And quickly to anchor some numbers in terms of, you were talking about number of courts. There was basically 250,000 tennis courts at the peak, there was about 30,000 racquetball courts. And in the United States, I think we're around 3,000. So you can see from just a yeah. metrics number where we are in a scale-wise. So right. we've got room for growth is what I'm saying. That's it. That's <laughs> exactly right. It occurs to me that a lot of the strategy right now with the growth of the sport has really been from a fundraising perspective and essentially tapping into the 501c3 and asking for donations. You know, a question is, could this be investable? is a question that I think we really need to start answering and, or sorry, it's a question we need to start asking to then get answered. But what would be your optimistic and your pessimistic outlook, or I should say conservative outlook on whether this is investable? Well, I, I think the conservative outlook for the sport is that we just continue to move forward as we have, which is to say gradual growth. I'm a little worried and not worried at the same time about some of the things going on at the college level. There's been been some programs, I think because of COVID or maybe accelerated by COVID that have dropped squash as a varsity sport. And then the flip side of that, I'm not so worried. I think I'd be just as happy in many ways from a growth of the sport point of view, if there were lots and lots of club teams and there were a very active club schedule, intercollegiate club schedule as well. And I think there's ways we can all foster that. So I would just like to see more people playing, whether it's a varsity level or not. Completely agree with that. And I think when I look at this also, I think there's another category to your point about we want more players, period. And then what level that fits into is, well, let's figure that out as we go. So there's varsity, there's club. And the other sector that I would say, and just this is literally just playing from the playbook in tennis is, which is called tennis on campus and getting squash on campus going. And yeah. There are 35,000 participants of tennis on campus. So I would trade amazing. trade that in a heartbeat. And I think that that actually, when you look at this from a, a pipeline perspective or growth perspective, it's like, let's get squash on campus established, which few amount of rules can self-regulate, can self-govern and go. 
then you graduate into a potential club and then choose whether to go varsity or not. If we have 600 club programs, we're going to be in a much better position. And I would also like to see right now, it's not, and I get this from a liability perspective of where there are courts, they're not at 100% utilization. So how do we open those doors that are behind lock and key in universities or other institutions to then make that more open to the public? And I think there are cases to be made there. Yeah. And I think it just what you're saying reminds me of the partnership that Greg Zaff has with Northeastern University with Squash Busters. I mean, that that is, if anybody, any squash players have the opportunity to see that facility and, and what Greg has built there, it's really spectacular. But there are ways that whether you're a high school or college to open up your facility to the community at large that are very exciting would expand again it's just ways to expand the number of people playing the game well greg is the godfather in so many different ways of squash busters but another model he did that was very interesting was his extension into or his expansion into providence and that was the one of the true hybrids of working at the private day school called moses brown mm-hmm creating the extension of the Squash Busters programming down to Providence and then also having a community uh, club aspect to it. So it's a perfect model. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he's in Lawrence, Massachusetts as well. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. uh, I'm not familiar with that one, but yes. We need more Greg Zafs for the game of squash. Let's put it that way. And for the world at large. Yeah. And I think that, well, that's a perfect segue. Go turning this sort of spotlight onto you and your playing career. And you've done everything from college to doubles and the master's level. And and also you've been involved with squash busters, I know. So why don't we start there? Sure. I'm very humble about my squash game. I, I look around and I just see so much amazing talent out there. But look, I've been lucky enough to play for a long time. I've been injured, come back from injuries And one of the joys of the game for me has been to know and be on the court with people like Greg Zapp for so many years now. I actually played against Greg in high school, if you can believe it. And, you know, he was a great competitor back then, obviously, and became an All-American at Williams. And I got to learn squash in high school. I had never played, I'd never seen a court before until I went away to boarding school. And a New York City friend of mine named Michael Maris said, Ullman, you play tennis. Come on, let me take you and show you this game of squash. And so he took me onto the court and I was addicted pretty much from when I hit the first ball. And lucky enough to have a great coach there who spent a lot of time with me, helping me kind of after after school, as it were extra time coaching and playing in the local league in addition to being on the team. And we had some great players on the team back then, players who, frankly, I I still know and play doubles with today. And then I got to go to play on the Princeton team with Bob Callahan. His first year as a coach was my freshman year. And Bob was, again, I feel very lucky to have been coached by him and gotten to know him and just a great person and a great example and someone to emulate your whole life. Was there any sort of Bob Callahan moment for you that kind of you think back to? What's fascinating to me is, first of all, Bob was ahead of his time in a lot of ways. He created, you know, all these squash camps that we see in the summers. I think he had the first one at Princeton. And I was actually taught at that squash camp for three summers when I was in college. I remember Bob, it's amazing. I think he was only three years out of college, right, when he was coaching. And so he was almost a peer, not quite. 
And certainly he was a peer to the seniors on the team who would have known him as a when he was in college. And I felt looking back, I sort of felt badly for him because the team kind of ran roughshod over him those first few years because he was getting his sea legs on how to be a coach and discipline and people and stuff. And our team had no interest in any of that. And I, I remember at one point a food fight broke out like in front of a Wendy's or something. And it was just mayhem. I mean, we just, we tortured him, I think. And I think he became the elder statesman of, of squash and the dean of squash coaches later in his career. But in those first few years, I think he wasn't quite there yet. But he was such, we were so lucky to, to know him, such a decent person. And he always did the right thing, which was great to see when you're in college and a young person. And then in 1996, I moved back from London with my family and I started playing again. And then I had this rejuvenation in the game and started playing a lot of doubles and lucky enough to start learning from the great Peter Briggs, how to play doubles. And so started doing that. No sooner had I started playing than I was on the court with three of my favorite people in the world, Jamie Kempner and Michael and Alan Breed. I tore my Achilles and completely ruptured it. That set me back a good year, year and a half, but got through that and started playing a lot of doubles again. And then more recently, really in the last five or seven years, I've started playing singles again. And it started with what I found to be a very inspirational event, which was the World Masters that were being held at UVA in 2018. And I decided to go and play there. And I went and won one match, lost my next match, but I played pretty well. I felt good about it. But more than that, I felt like, wow, these are my people. This is like, I'm around thousands of people who just all they want to do is play squash and and get better at the game and they're from all over the world there were so many interesting people that i met and were there any characters at that event that kind of stand out for you well i'll tell you i met someone on your that you've interviewed hope prakop and i met there really for the first time and i had never seen her play before i'd heard about her but you start meeting these types of people in the game and it gets you even more inspired to be a part of squash and try to contribute and participate more in the sport and so it was people like that it was just a lot of fun and then to see the uva facility and what they've built there and you see wow this sport really can be something big and beautiful and exciting it was really cool for me just to see, just to go and see that. It was great. Yeah, it's a pretty, I mean, we're so fortunate in the United States to have these amazing facilities. And obviously with the Spectre Center, that will be opening up soon. But UVA has been a leader and Penn redoing their courts. And there's so many to mention here. But yeah, I mean, they're really majestic. Oh, yeah. I got to play against Richard Millman, who's sort of a legend in my era, on one of the show courts there at UVA. It was it was. It was very exciting for me. It really was. Well, and I'm sure there's a lot of reasons why we all still participate in the sport. But if you had to kind of try and summarize it, what does squash mean to you to keep it in your life? Well, I think it's friends, it's fitness, it's community, and it's playing the game and trying to get better at the game. And I think those are the key 
things for me. I have so many relationships that I cherish that I've made through the game of squash. And it's even connected me to my family in new ways. My cousin's daughter plays in Philadelphia and it's been fun. She's come and watched me play. I've watched her play. It's been great that way. It's been great for relationships. It's been great for my fitness. I'm not someone who likes to go to the gym or run around a track. Squash enables me to get the heart beating major way and have fun while doing it. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's been a very good sort of organizing principle for my own fitness, but it's so much more than that too, because it brings that, like you said, that sense of community. And really that was part of the reason why I even started Squash Radio was to really document some of these feelings and these conversations and these stories. And, you know, what I'd like to turn the attention to was you are a fellow podcaster and, you know, (laughs) what was the genesis or the spark for starting your own podcast? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, it's podcasting and podcasts themselves have been something I've enjoyed listening to for a while. And it's obviously become a much more important form of media in general. It's a very efficient way to take in a conversation or information or learn about something or somebody. Particularly, I find if you're in the car, my wife and I love to just turn on a podcast or somebody we'd like to listen to and, and you can digest it in a kind of nice half hour, hour period. I feel like I've been very lucky to have a really unique network in the world around my professional career. And this financial technology interest of mine and investing interest is something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily know about, but it's but financial services so ever-present in our life. I feel like it's an important topic, relatively speaking, but one which the trends are changing really fast. And it's been fun to bring people on who are experts in, say, cryptocurrency or retirement savings or banking or investing, whatever it might be, and have them walk through what it is they do, how they do it. And I try to make it digestible and understandable and kind of fun, you know, kind of learning casual, fun way. And hopefully it works. Well, it completely works. I've said this to you offline, but I'll say it on here. It it really helped me. You accomplished everything you just said, where it made it very digestible for me. There was also I think for me, by venturing into the fintech, where especially for blockchain for me, which is such new technology, and seeing the ripples effect that that will have on the financial sector actually helps me more understand the current financial sector. Because it's been so daunting that getting into derivatives, it's such a complex system that I haven't fully gotten my hands around it. And so now seeing the kind of the new commercialization of blockchain that's coming out. I was like, oh, now I understand that more effectually. Yeah. Well, I had the Zach Prince podcast. Was I think it was the most popular one I've done. And in fact, today I just read Zach, his company just raised $345 million or something around that at a, I think, two and a half or $3 billion valuation. So by the way, it's been a year since I spoke to him, I believe. I think the valuation of his company has gone up tenfold or something. Crazy. Wow. He's done a great job. And just, yeah, he runs a company called BlockFi, which is one of the leaders in the 
Bitcoin and cryptocurrency space. He's done a great job and it's been fun to know him. He's a squash player too. So you should get That's what I was about to say. I was like, he's another he squash player. player. He likes to play. I think he's, you're he's maybe a little biased there too, yes, but no. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a fascinating interview. I was going to ask, I mean, when you're bringing on the, your guests, there's such a variety that you bring on. How do you pick who you're going to bring on to the show? <laughs> I try to think about what sort of topical, and I think most of what I'm doing is hopefully topical, but, you know, I pick who I know and who I think would be a good fun to have on and have a fun little half hour, 45 minute conversation with. It has been a range of guests. I'm actually particularly proud that I think some of the, the women guests that I've had on have been great. And since this is Women's Month and I am the father of twin daughters, and I think in my world, financial services, women are pretty underrepresented often. And so whether it's Ryan Horgan or, or Margaret Hardigan, Angela Ceresny, we've had some great women on who have talked about their businesses they're building at the CEO level. So that's been great too. And what was the spark that led you to do it? I, like I said, I, I listen to a lot to podcasts. I like it. I like talking. I like talking to my friends. I like trying to make things understandable. It seemed like it would be fun to do. By the way, I don't know if you feel the same way, but if someone told me I'm going to pay you to be a podcaster for the rest of your life and you're going to be able to live okay doing it, I, I'd sign up for that in a heartbeat. But it's fun to do. I can tell you enjoy it. And I know I do. Yeah, this is, it started off as really a side project and is really the spark that I get from it. The enjoyment is significant. And already trying to do more. So I'm answering the question of of not just uh, would I get paid to, to do this? It's like, I'm paying to do this. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. And I did my first one at the StockTwits headquarters and they had a, a little makeshift podcast studio there. I had noticed they were doing them too. So I, I kind of leveraged off their equipment and and whatnot. But I didn't have a name for it then. But the chief of staff of the company said, Bill, you play a lot of squash, right? Why don't you call it squashing the market? I was like, well, that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, no, right up your alley. And it's, uh, it is a really good podcast. It's, it's up there on my favorites now and subscribe. So thank you. Well, what we're going to do is transition into uh, the quick fire segment, which I break it into two sections. One is talking about a little bit about squash, and then the other ones get to know you on a different level. So the first section, which is just kind of, you can answer in like picture a 90 second drill, however you want to go or words if you want your choice. But there's two ways you can kind of address each area of this is what you love about it or what would you want to see improved or both your call. But we're going to take different segments of the sport. And the first one is professional squash. I love the athleticism, the expertise, the stamina, the shot making, the creativity, I am in awe of these athletes. They are amazing to me. I'm not sure I would change much. I think I would just say refereeing is really hard in squash, and I don't quite know how to handle the occasional controversies that develop over let calls and whatnot. I figure the sport will figure it out over time, but they can get rid of that and keep the games moving a little faster, and that'll make it perfect. Are you saying that because you think it detracts from the fan experience? Yes, I do. And I think tennis solved it through technology, yeah. but squash has a different issue of yeah. people being in the way of each other. And that comes down to judgment. Yeah. And so I don't know if they can create an algorithm on a computer to to solve that one. Not yet anyway. 
Yeah. Are there any players that jump to mind for you as, as your favorites to watch? Well, all the Egyptians to me are sort of masterful, Shabagi, Momin. I'm just in awe of, of all of them. I like Paul Cole. They're just, they're great. And since you are a doubles player, do you dabble much in the SDA tour at all? From well, I don't dabble. It? I watch it. I've had the good fortune to play in a bunch of pro-ams and also had the good fortune that Damian Mudge was the head pro at the university club where I'm a member. So I always hoped that some of his skill would rub off on me. It never really did. But those guys are great athletes too. It's a different sport, different, different pace, different shot making. Yeah. But I love, yeah, I love watching the doubles too at that high level. I'm excited. Uh, the Naval Academy has built an all-glass doubles court. Oh, And so great. I can't wait to see the SDA play there. I have very fond memories of going to the Naval Academy in college to play tennis and squash there. First of all, it's one of the most beautiful campuses in America. And second of all, the squash was always fun to play. They had a great setup. I can remember all the long row of courts and lots of viewing, and it was fun. Well, the next section is college squash. So what do you love and what do you want to see improve? <laughs> the only thing that's bugged me about college squash, and I've now watched not enough of it, is I think the sportsmanship is, is not what it was. And again, I'm not sure how you fix it, but I've noticed that during the matches, there seems to be a lot of disruption or controversies over let calls. And it just doesn't seem like it's the games being played the way it should be in college. No, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. And the two ways, it's both culture. We need to continue to build a culture around sportsmanship. But then also, really, the officiating is a huge aspect of this. I mean, when you go to any college basketball game or soccer or lacrosse, you wouldn't tell the players, just ref yourself. And that's what we ask these college athletes to do. That's a very good point. Again, I, I don't know how to necessarily solve it, but I've seen college matches where they've had third-party refs and people are still screaming at each other. Yeah, so. it, it at least, I think officiating, it's funny, there's another segment of squash radio or another show type I do called The Breakdown. And the most recent one that's going to be released is talking about officiating. And we kind of go through that where officiating in every sport, I mean, look at the NFL which arguably has the most amount of at-stakes money here and technology. And it's still, you're talking about the calls. And some of it is black and white. Was it in or was it out? So it's still going to, I think, be prevalent in our game, but it, let's not have it plague us. Right. I think that's right. And then last area is just desired future plans for the sport. And I know we kind of touched on this a lot in the, the previous one, but what would you aim for? Well, I, personally, I, I just hope I stay healthy and avoid knee, ankle, shoulder, Achilles, back injuries. And I really have enjoyed the master's level tournaments that I've played in. I love the competition, which sounds strange, but if you're an athlete, even an aging athlete like myself, to try to do your best when it matters is a really fun challenge. And to try to execute the shot or execute the strategy that you've practiced and do it when maybe you're down or, or you're under a lot of pressure or it's a stressful situation. I think it's a great challenge to see if you can do it. And it's very rewarding when you can. It's disappointing when you can't. And then you, you, know, you pick yourself up and try to learn and do better next time. But I love getting nervous before the matches. I like playing the matches. It's been fun. And I hope I get, I just hope I get to keep doing it. I'm extremely lucky because I get to play with these great, my partners are all 
better than me. So, which is, by the way, the key in doubles, always pick a better doubles partner than yourself. But I, you know, Jeff Stanley, Rob Hill, Bart Sandbrook, Bo Buferty recently, I've just had the best time playing with these great, great players and great people, hopefully make me better at what I do. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say you've sponsored other avenues, but Squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring Squash? I think there's just a a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments, I've been to professional tournaments, and you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think Squash Radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. I think you nailed it. Is there anything else you you might want to add? But I think you you nailed it. That is, (laughs) that's exactly what I think. (laughs) Because I'm in like with hope. I've met Hope so many times and they've got into a little bit of conversation, but listening to that conversation you had with her, she's just a squash through and through person. And I don't know how many listeners you get, but it doesn't matter. It's the fact that people can now relate to Hope as this person. Hopefully they're going to do that with me. I'm sure, because I'm quite a private person, I'm not, I've never been a person who hung around the squash circle of people, but when I do, I've got some very good friends and they will probably know me, but there's a lot of people who saw me at junior tournaments and a lot of my juniors were top players in the country. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's a great way of bringing some of the personalities from squash. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again, and back to our show. Well, shifting into the other section of this is where we get to know a little bit about you and I. I always enjoy these because I never know where these are going to go. So do you have a favorite movie and or documentary? Oh, what a question. And I, So I love movies. And as my family knows, the raunchier and more juvenile the movie, the better for me. But favorite movie... I might go with a classic like Rear Window, Hitchcock, or Godfather, Lawrence of Arabia. I love those great, great old movies. But now you've opened the door. Now you've opened the door. Like uh, Superbad and Step Brothers and that whole genre. There's a movie with Elizabeth Banks that we've watched a lot lately. It's been on HBO called Walk of Shame, which is one of our family favorites. I like it. What is either something can be a a physical thing or an activity that brings you disproportionate happiness? And the one caveat here is I'm going to give, you know, I think family and friends really fall in that category that's given pets. And because we've already talked about squash, let's see what else we might get to. Disproportionate happiness. Well, I'll say uh, good cultural and artistic experiences. It could be a movie. It could be a show. A couple of years ago, I saw Hamilton on Broadway. I ended up 
reading the Chernow book. I ended up studying him more. Now I'll visit his grave site in New York City at the Trinity Church. And I, I don't profess to know that much about him or be an expert or anything, but it, it's amazing how one show can trigger so much reading and interest and singing along with the songs and all that kind of stuff. So that can do it for me too. Did you see what the original cast? I did. I did. It, wow. I was very lucky. Saw it early. Actually, when I saw it, it was in, I think it was still in previews. It wasn't even Oh wow! like the, the main run. So it was probably four or five years ago now. It was amazing. Yeah, I was a huge fan of the music. It just really, I think kind of like what you said, it just sparked something in me. It was able to make you aware of history, but also make it relevant and want to learn more. But I have to say that because I watched it when it came out on Disney, <laughs> there were was, there was certain plot holes I really just, you need to see visually in order to kind of understand just somehow I wasn't tracking it throughout the music. So what an amazing show. Well, the next scenario I'm going to give you is, I'm sure you're familiar with TED Talks. And mm -hmm. here's going to be your moment to give a TED Talk. But in <laughs> these rules, it can't be something that you're well known for. So I know with your lengthy career and people know a lot about this. And so it's maybe just something that isn't as obvious and or something you would want the opportunity to go explore and then share. So what would be your TED Talk? Oh, my goodness. I think it would have to be Civil War related. I was a history major in college and I read a lot about the Civil War. As a period in American history, I find it fascinating for lots of reasons, but I, I find it particularly relevant to almost everything that's going on in America today. And so I would love to learn more and share that in a TED Talk. Back to squash, when I drove to UVA to play in the Masters, I deliberately stopped in Gettysburg on the way down. And I spent the afternoon by myself walking around and I listened, this is how silly I am, I listened to the Killer Angels which is a great book on Gettysburg, if people haven't read it. I put it on book on tape, audiobook. I listened to it on the way down. And then I drove to Gettysburg. I got out at Gettysburg and literally walked Little Round Top, where they talk about in the book. And you can feel and see the from the geography, the difficulty the Confederates had coming up the hill the Union Army shooting down at them and how important strategically it was to the whole battle. But I just, stuff like that's amazing to me. So I, I, and the Civil War and all the cultural issues that we're confronting today as a country, these things have been with us for a lot longer than people sometimes realize. I would agree. I would echo that. Well, to close out on and I've expanded this. It used to be just what books would you recommend? But I'm going to say what books and or podcasts you might recommend. Alec Baldwin's Here's the Thing yeah. is really good. He has an amazing voice. He lets his guests talk. He doesn't really interrupt them. I like his style. I like his guests. I think he can be kind of, he can do the celebrity thing and then he can do an episode on New York City real estate. And it's great. He's a real New Yorker. So I kind of like that too. But that would be one I'd recommend to people. It's an easy, you know, it's easy. It's not going to tax your brain yeah. too much. Any books? Oh, books. Right now, I'm reading a, a really interesting book by the former, I think he was the head of the history department at West Point. His name is Ty Sedul. 
And his book is called Robert E. Lee and Me. And it's about his reckoning as a Southerner with the legacy of the Confederacy and of Robert E. Lee. And it's a fascinating personal journey and a fascinating story. And again, an important cultural moment for us. And so it's not a long book. It's, I, I would recommend that. It's really good. Showing off your no, no, history book. I don't know. It's very narrow. You can see it's all one area <laughs> here. That, yeah. <laughs> well, the last one that just occurred to me since you are a podcaster is, and let's put it out there in the universe, who would be a dream guest for you to get on uh, squashing the market? Well, I've had some people turn me down, some big name investors that either for compliance reasons or ego reasons, they didn't want to go on the show with me. But I don't know that it's the recognizable names that make my podcast what it is. I'm not kind of going after like the Uber celeb investor or CEO, although I'd be happy to interview them. I'm, I'm more interested in entrepreneurs and people building things at earlier stages in their journey. And I think that that is more relatable to most people. Like if you want to learn about Warren Buffett, go read his annual reports. It's great. You'll learn a ton. I'm not sure there's anything new that I'm going to add by having Warren Buffett other than me getting to say, oh, I got to meet Warren Buffett. I'm kind of more interested in the entrepreneurial and investing process when people are more at the earlier end of their careers. I think there's an element, even with what I do on Squash Radio, is I've purposely not gone after the top pros. I would love to have their stories told in a different way. But at least they're having, they're captured a little bit versus for me, there's an element that I want to tell the story of the squash community in kind of a mosaic of going deep on each person. But then we're already starting to see similarities kind of bubble up. So I, I would share your sentiment there. Well, thank you so much for joining on the Squash Radio. And it's been a pleasure to have you on. And I'm honored to have been on. You're kind to ask me. And I hope I haven't put your listeners to sleep. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so at all. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and, well, until next time, be well and have fun.